Well, I hope it's been a great week for you. I really enjoyed being with you, and it's a nice way to start the year, deep in God's Word, making a bunch of new friends, and, and thinking about how we might serve God this year. Wish you all the best. Pray, wish you all the best in Launceston as you work that all out. And we ask for your uh, prayerful well wishes as we tackle the same down here in Hobart. Um, and uh, really excited to see how God will work amongst us as a community, others who join the community, and especially to see others come to faith for the first time this year. Wouldn't that be really exciting too? So it's um, lots, lots to look forward to and each to play a part in. We're looking here at this final section through 1 Corinthians and every occurrence of the Kingdom of God in Paul's letter, first letter to the Corinthians. I don't know if you've noticed before, but the writings of the apostles in the New Testament, Paul, the author of Hebrews, James, Peter, John, Jude, they, they sound quite different to um, the teachings of Jesus that we find in the Gospels. Like Jesus used heaps of parables, um, but we don't find a lot of those elsewhere, do we? Jesus talked about himself as the Son of Man a lot, but we don't find a lot of talk about Jesus as the Son of Man in the New Testament letters. Jesus talked a lot about the Kingdom of Heaven, the Kingdom of God, but we don't find a lot of mention of the Kingdom of Heaven and the Kingdom of God in the New Testament letters. And actually, it's rare to find quotations of Jesus' teaching. We have quotations from the Old Testament, but not a whole lot of quotations of Jesus' teaching. Have you ever noticed that, some of those things? It's an interesting kind of uh, thing to note, you know. I mean, it doesn't mean anything in particular. I suppose you might say, well, if I was an apostle, I'd quote Jesus more or whatever. But it is what it is. It's, it's interesting to ponder why. One possible reason is that the apostles had a very strong, strangely almost, such a strong regard for Jesus' own earthly teaching himself that they saw it as a special thing, and that's why they wrote four Gospels all about it, um, to capture that teaching. But they saw that, that was his words, to be captured in his context, in his way. Another AFES staff member over in um, WA at Curtin, David Mitchell, wrote a book about the Son of Man expression in particular. And um, David suggests perhaps the reason the apostles didn't use Son of Man a lot he says, it's a bit of a, an Aussie reference, he says, um, I've actually got a quote here on my, my phone, I emailed it to myself. Um, he says, think about the, uh, the rugby player and boxer, Anthony Mundine. An analogy may be drawn at this point to the Australian rugby league player and professional boxer, Anthony Mundine. His consistent self-reference as the man. <laughs> um, uh, and the reporting of this in the local media means that it's unusual for anyone else to refer to him that way, or for anyone else to refer to anyone else that way. Um, in fact, who would want to refer to him that way? It becomes his own way of referring to himself. It's kind of his own chosen self-reference from himself, from his own lips. And perhaps it's a similar thing. If you walked with Jesus, sat with Jesus, listened to Jesus for three years, um, experienced that whole process, then the Son of Man just feels, just doesn't sit right on your lips. It's the way Jesus chose to talk about himself. It belongs best on his lips. That, that's an interesting thought. Um, it might partly be just that really powerful sense that this shift, um, you know, from BC, before Christ, to AD, the year of our Lord, marked by his crown, coronation and his death for the sins of the world, the conquering of the devil, and then his rising and ascending as the king of the, uh, you know, salvation, um, but that shift means we find a new vocabulary for now this age, that Jesus' teaching and, and way of talking was suitable for that, the dawn of the kingdom. And, you know, it could be that. They go the new age, now a new vocabulary. Could be just letters are a different form of teaching from, um, from gospel uh, Galilean teaching. Certainly Jesus teaches differently 
in Galilee from the way we get lots of his Jerusalem teaching in John's Gospel. So, you know, different setting, different time, different personalities. John's Gospel is probably the one that, you know, that sounds the most like the letters of John. You know, we see a lot of overlap there, but otherwise... Oh, James's letters sound a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. I'm not quoting the Sermon on the Mount, but it sounds a lot like the Sermon on the Mount. Paul quotes... Uh, Jesus' institution of the Lord's Supper in 1 Corinthians chapter 11. He actually quotes there from Jesus in verse 23 and following. So there's a bit. And there are these mentions of the kingdom of God. It's not that they don't mention the kingdom of God. Paul does refer to the kingdom of God. And we'll look at the letter in which he does that the most, these four references here in, in 1 Corinthians. Paul refers to it a few other times. Romans 14, 17. Galatians 5, 21. Ephesians 5, verse 5. Twice in Colossians. Colossians 1, 12 to 13. And Colossians 4, 11. Uh, 1 Thessalonians 2, 12. 2 Thessalonians 1, verse 5. And then twice in 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 1. And 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse 18. So there's a bunch of others. But the place where it's concentrated the most is, is here in 1 Corinthians, where we see it uh, at points across the letter. And so it becomes an interesting way of both... Touching again on our theme, the kingdom of God, but also um, getting a little bit, not really a full overview, but some little soundings in this uh, interaction with the Corinthian church. Um, so let's begin in chapter 4. And the heading I've given for the chapter 4 quote, 1 Corinthians chapter 4, is the power of the kingdom in apostolic discipline. Apostolic is the adjective for apostle. Um, something related to an apostle is apostolic. The power of the kingdom in apostolic discipline. Um, because Paul is in this awkward situation of division in the Corinthian church that appears to have some negativity reflected back at Paul, the apostle who founded the church. So we see a hint of the, um, the division at the beginning of the book, 1 Corinthians 1, verses 11 to 12. My brothers, some from Chloe's household have informed me that there are quarrels among you. What I mean is this. One of you says, I follow Paul. Another, I follow Apollos. Another, I follow Kephas. Still another, I follow Christ. And in chapter 3, verses 1 to 4, he says, it's childish that you're like this. I follow Paul. I follow Christ. It's like you're little babies in Christ. You're not mature like you think you are. You're not deeply spiritual like you fancy you are. You're like babies in Christ. You're kids in the kids' talk who come up the front and the pastor says, so who, who was it that was with Jesus? Um, in the story we just read, the kid puts up his hand, my daddy's a builder and he's got a big truck. You know, that, he says, you're like that. You know, in fact, some of those kids are wiser than you because they know the proper answer to every single question is Jesus. Yeah? <laughs> Whereas you guys are going about Paul and Kephas and Apollos and everything else. Um, and they seem to be especially interested in what they see to be powerful. It seems to be a very... Like Corinth, Corinth was a port city and it was a Greek intellectual city. It was, a, it was kind of a worldly, mona sort of place where there was, there was sex and there was various gods and money flowing and, and they fancied what the Greeks prized in terms of deep wisdom and a fancy talk. And so Paul addresses that kind of hang-up in chapter 1, verse 18. He corrects them and says, let me tell you about the message of the cross, 118, which is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it's the power of God. In verse 20 he says, where is the wise man, where is the scholar, where is the philosopher of this age? Hasn't God made foolish the wisdom of this world? 
A sense in the wisdom of God, the wisdom of its, uh, the world through its wisdom didn't know him. God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs. Greeks look for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified. A stumbling block to Jews and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called, both Jews and Greeks, Christ, the power of God and the wisdom of God. For the foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of God stronger than man's strength. Don't be hung up about fancy-sounding, clever, clever words and mere displays of some kind of power. Look for true wisdom, true power, which is God, who might seem weak hanging on that cross. Yeah? Might seem foolish, and yet there, mysteriously, God was at work, astonishingly, to do something more powerful and more wise than any human philosophy. 3 verse 18 he rebukes them again along those lines. Don't deceive yourselves. If anyone thinks he's wise by the standards of this age, he should become a fool so that he may become truly wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness in God's sight. 3 verse 21. So then no more boasting about men. All things are yours. Or 4 verses 8 to 10. He gets sarcastic with them and says, look at you guys. You think you're so great. Already you have all you want. Already you've become rich. You've become kings. And that without us, the apostles. Oh, I wish you really had become kings. We might be kings with you. For it seems to me God has put us apostles on display at the end of the procession, like men condemned to die in the arena. We've been made a spectacle of the whole universe to angels as well as to people. We are fools for Christ, but you guys are so wise in Christ. We are weak, but you are so strong. You are honoured. We are dishonoured. Yeah, this is a rebuke of their, their obsession with a particular kind of power and wisdom. Later on, we discover that leads to a fascination with what they see as truly spiritual manifestations. And it seems that the speaking in tongues miracle is something they see as a particular sign of spiritual power. There are these divisions. There's this boasting. And it seems there are leaders in the mix stirring up this trouble, stepping forward to promise the wisdom and the power. And uh, it seems potentially also looking down their noses at the Apostle Paul, by contrast to them, ah, we're better than him. Yeah, maybe just gently, you know, just gently um, putting him down. Verses 16 to 17, chapter 3, he warns against those who will destroy God's temple. In chapter 4, verse 3, I'm oh, sorry, 4, verse 13. Uh, sorry, oh, yeah, 4, verse 3, he talks about um, being judged by human opinion. And he says, I don't care about what humans say about me. And then later on in chapter 4, he speaks about them having, in verse 15, 10,000 guardians in Christ, but not many fathers. So at the end of this chapter, he then turns to these troublemakers, these guardians, these boasters, these ones who presume to judge Paul. And that's where our mention of the kingdom comes in. He appeals to them. We've just looked a little, skated over the theological argument Realign your definition of power. Realign your definition of wisdom. Make it cross-shaped. See that God's power is seen in the humble, loving service of dying to save. See how powerful it is to then proclaim that message to others. That they may then come to see the mystery of God's purposes, come to new life, forgiveness, eternal life. What more powerful thing is there than God in such meek humility bringing salvation. Realign of your wisdom. What greater wisdom is there than God himself speaking and not necessarily answering all our wise philosophical questions? 
You know, after the time of the New Testament, we actually find some of the early Christian leaders really being tied up in knots, going, I love the Bible. I love what it teaches me. I see that it's true. And it is beautiful in a way, but it's kind of embarrassing because it's not as beautiful as ancient Greek philosophy. You know, I feel complicated about that. And they, they, they get all twisted up and tangled up about it um, because it, the Bible doesn't come to us in the fanciest of, of, of um, scholarly Greek for the most part. It comes to us in a down-to-earth way, telling us here's what God has to say to everybody, great and small and wise and simple. Yeah, realign your view of power, realign your view of wisdom. He appeals to them. He appeals to them relationally too in verse 14 about their history. I planted your church. I'm your apostle. I'm your dad in Christ. I'm not writing this to shame you. He says, I'm going to warn you as my dear children. Even though you have 10,000 guardians in Christ, all who want a piece of you, you don't have many fathers. For in Christ Jesus, I became your father through the gospel. He's trying to appeal their minds, to their understanding, to their experience, to their bond of relationship. And yet at the very end of the letter, in this section, he also um, raises the, the last resort of apostolic discipline. And that's a little bit that we're looking at here in 18. Some of you have become arrogant as if I will not come to you, but I will come to you very soon, if the Lord is willing. And then I'll find out not only how these arrogant people are talking, but what power they have. For the kingdom of God is not a matter of talk, but of power. What do you prefer? Shall I come to you with a whip? Or in love, with a gentle spirit? What he's saying here is, are you just all talk? And these leaders that you flock around, are they just all talk? All clever words and fancy PowerPoint presentations? Do they actually have any power? Because let me tell you, the kingdom of God, he says, that I preach, is not just all bragging, flexing, boasting, puff and spin. Some of the theologians who look at this passage squirm at it because it does feel like a different tone. I mean, he says it's a different tone. I, I, I want to appeal to you as my father. I'd rather come in a gentle and loving spirit. However, they want to say, oh, no, the power here is the power of the effectiveness for conversion and for godliness or something. And the true gospel ministry does that. I agree. And that is the main emphasis of Paul's teaching main emphasis of 1 Corinthians. But I don't think saying you're all talk, but you'll see I have power to convert and to make people godly. Because I don't quite get how that would be manifest. Here he's saying, I'm coming soon, and when I come, you'll see it, they'll see it, everyone will know it. So what does that mean then? If, if, if these theologians are right, does it like he comes and then converts a bunch of people and helps everyone overcome a few of their sins? I just don't quite see how it's a... He's, he's warning a showdown. I'm not quite sure how trying to interpret the, the power of the kingdom here in its ordinary sense of conversion and godliness or something quite works. Now, I think we have to be reflecting here that instead what he's saying is the kingdom will be seen in a more evident, manifest, powerful way. A bit like Jesus, humble and unextraordinary often, on the Mount of Transfiguration, being transformed to get a glimpse of his true glory. Clothes whiter than snow, blinding to look at, standing with Moses and Elijah for an instant. Yeah? You see a similar kind of parallel passage at the end of 2 Corinthians. Um, the very end of 2 Corinthians. That's um, a very similar kind of thing. And it again shows how reluctant he is to speak this way. And yet there may be the necessity for it. Uh, 2 Corinthians chapter 13. 
This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time, and I now repeat it when I'm absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Since you're demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, he is not weak in dealing with you, but is powerful among you. For to be sure, he was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. Likewise, we are weak in him, yet by God's power we will live with him to serve you. Examine yourselves to see whether you're in the faith. Do not realise that Christ is in you, unless, of course, you fail the test. And I trust you'll discover that you haven't failed the test. And so we are praying for you. He says he doesn't want to be harsh in verse 10. I've written these things this way when I'm absent, so that when I come I may not have to be harsh in the use of my authority, the authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. They both have that same sense. I don't want to talk this way. This is not how I've been talking for most of 1 Corinthians, or most of 2 Corinthians. This is not what I'm interested in. This is not what I'm about. I want to appeal to you. I want to persuade you. I want to point you to the gospel. I want... However, as the apostle, he has a unique authority. Not an authority I have. I can't talk this way about whips and um, a stern authority. However, you might know the story in Acts of how the apostle Peter confronted Ananias and Sapphira. And by a miraculous power, they were struck dead as a judgment from God against their sinning against the church. Wow. Paul, while on Cyprus in Acts 13, confronts a sorcerer who's causing mischief in his evangelistic work. And the sorcerer is struck blind. The Corinthians are told that some of their number in 1 Corinthians chapter 11 are dying and becoming sick because of their gross abuse of the Lord's Supper, using it as a party for the rich mates to get together on the high table and enjoy luxury while the poor, poorer Christians look on, hungry from a distance. It's not the, the normal thing in the New Testament. I understand why theologians want to squirm away from it, but it seems he is saying, worst case scenario, I don't want to go there. I'm saying all this other stuff because that's what I'm about. However, as an apostle of Jesus, he is also present with me in his ruling, judging power, and I may exercise that power. Be warned. Listen. Repent. Turn back. Paul is not just one teacher among many, one guardian among many. The gospel is not just one theological idea among many different theological opinions. Truth and godliness in obedience to the true and living God, creator of everything, is not just, oh, well, that's your opinion and I have my opinion and they're all, we should respect each other's opinions. No, there's there is ultimate truth, and there are times when that needs to be stood for. Now, what does that mean for us today? Well, we don't have apostles today ruling with that same kind of prophetic power, and so there isn't anybody who will eventually write to a church, be careful, or I will come, and I'll come with this more harsh use of, of manifest of Christ's judgment. It is, however, a reminder that Jesus still is Although the weak servant Lord who speaks now the word of the cross, he is ruling and reigning and one day will return to judge. But he rules and he sees and he will ultimately call to account any who destroy his church. He may act directly, not through an apostle's discipline, but he may bring judgment upon a church in some way, in some manifestation of his judging power through sickness or death or disaster. He may choose to do that. It's not the ordinary way. We experience things, but he may. And we do also have the ordinary forms of discipline in the life of the church. 
Jesus, like the Apostle Paul, is reluctant to go to harsh uses of authority. In Matthew 18, Jesus says, if you've got a conflict with a brother or sister, don't immediately come down on them like a ton of bricks. Meet just the two of you, privately, sort it out. Maybe you can win him over, make peace, win her over, yeah? But if that doesn't work out, again, don't come down on them like a ton of bricks. Just gather together two or three others to come and have the conversation so that maybe some others can listen in, mediate, see what's said and whether it's fair and whether things have been properly heard. And then if that still doesn't work, bring it to the church. And then if they won't listen to the church, even then you see the church is trying to appeal to them, win them over, but if they still won't listen to the church, they treat them as you would an unbeliever. Pay them for a tax collector. Send them out of the church. That's not miraculous power. It's the slow, reluctant use for church discipline, which is removing someone from being recognised as a member of church fellowship. You're no longer, a, as far as we can see, a believer. We pray you might repent and return. 1 Corinthians 5 describes that kind of thing, where he urges the Corinthians to, in his absence, act in this ordinary exercise of church discipline. There's a serious case of immorality in the church, um, a man's married his mother-in-law, stepmom, rather, it seems, his father's wife, that expression suggests stepmother. And he says in verse two, of, verse 3 of chapter 5, even though I'm not physically present, I'm with you in spirit, and I already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present. When you are assembled in the name of the Lord Jesus, and I'm with you in the spirit, and the power of the Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Confront this serious sin. Deal with it the way a church is able to, which is a declarative, this is not right. Yeah? And so that is a responsibility of any Christian group, and especially the church, to confront consistent, uh, repeated, unrepentant sin and deal with it in the formal exercise of power. It doesn't involve miraculous anything, the way the apostles did, but it doesn't involve a stern saying as far as we can see, you're consistently not living in line with the truth or the godliness that sits with the gospel. Serious. But it actually makes a church healthy, you know. It makes a Christian organisation healthy when you deal with these things well. Yeah? It says that you take God seriously. It says that you take sin seriously. It says you take the truth seriously. It makes the remaining church healthy about these things on the same page. And of course, ultimately, when Jesus returns, there will be no more bragging, boasting, flexing, titles, puff, spin, miracles, clever words, online branding. <laughs> At that point, we'll be seen if we're all just mere talk, just merely Lord, Lord. And we'll be seen if we truly trust him and follow him. Chapter 6 is the next occurrence. That's a shorter passage, this one. Um, and I've given the title to chapter 6. It's on a similar theme. My title is Only the Saved and Sanctified Can Enter the Kingdom. Only the Saved and Sanctified Can Enter the Kingdom. In this section, he's been saying to the Corinthians, you should handle these issues yourself. We just looked at chapter 5. You've got this serious, obvious case of inappropriate uh, sexual relationship. That's not okay. Deal with that. Confront that. In, in, in faithfulness. In chapter 6, he says, you guys are taking each other to court in the secular courts over your squabbles. That's it. I'm suing. You're not repairing the fence. It's your job to repair the fence. You haven't paid your share of the rent. And, you know, I'm taking the court. 
And the courts in that time were kind of slave matches. They were a bit like YouTube comments. Like they were a pretty ferocious affair. So you're dragging each other into a pretty dirtbag context um, over, over being, you know, your rights, your interests, your personal squabbles. Instead of, he says, in chapter 6, verses 1 to 4, sort it out yourselves. Can't you even just find an everyday Christian who could hear it out and sort it through? Mediate, in other words. And figure out things in love, in other words. Now, he's not here talking about serious criminal cases that ought to be reported to the appropriate authorities or about serious forms of injustice where someone who is strongly disempowered needs formal help. These are the squabble. I mean, look, you get a sense of the kind of thing that's going on in his rebuke in verse 7. The very fact that you have lawsuits among you means you've been completely defeated already. Why not rather be wronged? Why not rather be cheated? Instead, you yourselves cheat and do wrong, and you do this to your brothers. It's about that kind of stuff. You're treading on my toes, you're staking, taking my stuff, you're not helping me get the best business deal, I'm irritated at you. On that level, it's like Jesus said, look, if someone causes you inconvenience, then just go with it and go a little bit further. If someone asks something of you, don't get all, you know, just, just go along with it, give, give them a bit more of a, if they insult you by the, the slap on the cheek, turn the other cheek, don't get into every situation where it's just on a matter of pride and such things. Don't always make it a fight. That's the level he's talking here. Yeah? You should sort these things out. Come on, you're bigger than this. Bigger than mere pride and property and so forth. That's the kind of point here. And in that context, he then says, godliness really matters in the kingdom. So that's in the context in which we get verse 9. Don't you know that the wicked will not inherit the kingdom of God? Don't be deceived. Neither the sexually immoral, nor idolaters, nor adulterers, nor male prostitutes, nor homosexual offenders, nor thieves, nor greedy, nor drunkards, nor slanderers, nor swindlers will inherit the kingdom of God. Godliness matters. Here, like most of the way time when Paul talks of the kingdom, he has in mind the second coming, the new creation, eternal life. That's mainly how Paul tends to use it. And he's saying, if you call yourself a Christian, but you continue to act in evil ways, unrepentant ways, in ongoing unrepentant sin, it shows your lack of true faith, lack of genuine discipleship with Jesus, and so it bars you from sharing eternal life with him. It's like Jesus himself said. Many of you will say, Lord, Lord, didn't I do this in your name? Didn't I do that in your name? But I'll say, I never knew you. If you don't do what I say, if you don't follow my way, I never knew you. He says similar in Ephesians 5 and Galatians 5 that the wicked won't inherit the kingdom of God if you are continuing in the faithless, unrepentant, ongoing sin. Now you guys, you and many who join our group grow up in church, a lot of us, claim to be Christian because we just kind of always have. We believe the truths, pretty much. But true saving faith shows itself in a changed life. And so if I believe the stuff pretty much, and I've always thought of myself as a Christian pretty much, and I've always gone to church, but I'm not actually each day turning, repenting, trusting, following Jesus' ways, then eventually I may be showing that I'm not truly one of Jesus' people at all. In which case I need to repent and turn back, hey? I need to ask him forgiveness, convert now. Ask him to make me one of his people. 
And in that process, then I'll, I'll wrestle with these same things he lists here, the same sins and temptations, but I'll ask his forgiveness and seek to live his way and ask for his spirit to lead me. There's a bunch of things listed there, isn't there? We'll just skate over them. We don't have heaps of time left, but he mentions sexual immorality and adultery. And for the person who follows Jesus, we need to hear what God says about sex. That sex is given for marriage. In that context, companionship, stable society, a place to receive children if God gives them. That's where sex fits. In marriage, in openness to children, between a man and a woman, a wonderful and joyful gift. That's where sex belongs. Sleeping around, sleeping with your boyfriend or girlfriend, even if it's serious, is not what God intended for sex. It's abusing God's good gift. Pornography videos, pornography photos is not what sex is about. Not honouring others and their bodies. Someone else's sister, brother, mother. It's not honouring God. It's not honouring others. It's not honouring his good gift of sex. Being married and betraying your marriage promise to this other person by cheating on them with someone else is betrayal indeed. It's treacherous. It's a treacherous thing to do. Idolatry, he says, no, remember that God is one God. There's one God and he's to be worshipped the way he says. Don't make up God for yourself and make up how you're going to worship him. Listen to him. Worship the true God, his way. He mentions homosexual sex as well here in a couple of places. Homosexual offenders and male prostitutes is how my translation translates these two words. Um, and there's other places in the scriptures as well that speak about these things as not the right way to enjoy God's good gift of sex. They seem to be wrong. That sex is connected with the opposite biological sexes in a lifelong committed relationship which open to having children. That's what sex is about. That sex outside of that, sexual activity outside of that, is not using sex rightly, as God says. Even if I have attractions and desires in a different way, which sometimes people do, even if they are persistent attractions and desires, I've always seemed to feel I've had and continue to stick around as a Christian. God is saying to us here, don't act on those desires. Don't entertain those desires. That's not what sex is for. That the Christian is free to choose in obedience to God not to act on those desires, on that pattern of sexual life. Images thieves and the greedy. Don't nick other people's stuff, even if they've got lots of it and no one will know. God knows. God sees. Don't nick other people's stuff. Don't foster a heart of greed that resents what God has given you, resents others for having other things that you wish you had. Drunkards, he mentions. You know, the Bible isn't a teetotaler book. It celebrates alcohol. It says it's a good thing. It's a sign of celebration in moderation. In moderation. Getting drunk, losing control of your speech, of your stomach, of your desires, of safe behaviour for your own body and other people's bodies. Yeah? It leads to such disasters. Car wrecks. Waking up the next day wondering what happened and with who last night. Saying things you wish you could take back. And it can lead to a really life-destroying addiction, can't it? 
slanderers and swindlers, those who with their words or with their actions treat others badly. This is not God's way for God's people. The gospel, he says, has another way for you. And the great thing is, he says, the gospel has another way for you even if you failed in, in all of these areas. In fact, he says to the Corinthians, I know you guys, I met you guys, I started this church, I saw you become Christians. You used to be like this, some of you. Verse 11, uh, that's what some of you were. That you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. You've been made new in God's eyes, forgiven in God's eyes, made a new person in God's eyes, cleaned, right, pure. You might still struggle. You might still experience temptation. You might still need future forgiveness. You wait for the final glorious resurrection. But fundamentally, you are new with God and safe with God. He sees you as his in Jesus. He sees you as washed in Jesus. He sees you as right in Jesus. He sees you as holy in Jesus. He will carry you as you stumble and fall, as you veer off and crawl back, as you persist with similar struggles, failures, sins, wrongs. He's merciful. He's kind. He will carry you to the end. So continue as you've started. Live out the gospel in your life. Let it overflow. Let it grow down into roots. Let it bear fruits in your relationships, in your financial dealings, with your words, with your worship, with your love life, with your body. Live as a Christian. Treat people well. Use sex well. Live God's way. It's a good way. It's a good way to live. And as those who are washed, justified and sanctified, we have a sure hope. And that's 1 Corinthians 15, our last passage. And we'll touch on it briefly, conscious of the time. Um, mammoth chapter. We can't skate through it all. He talks about how the resurrection of Jesus is a central part of the gospel. It happened, it really happened, and it's central to the gospel hope. It's not just a message to help you live life well or have some spiritual wisdom. It's about the reversal of sin and death. The resurrection is central. He says if the resurrection works true, we're wasting our time as Christians. It's pitiful. And then in the first occurrence of the kingdom of God in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about the effects of the resurrection. 1 Corinthians 15 from 20 and following. He says uh, in verse 20 to 23 that Jesus is the first of a harvest. He is like a new Adam, where Adam died and sin and death hit the world. Jesus is a new animal, something a new human race. He is risen to life. Any who believe in him and follow him rise to new life, are forgiven, and look forward to eternal life. And then it says, first it's Jesus, and then, verse 23, when he comes, those who belong to him will also be made alive. And then, verse 24, the end will come. He will hand over the kingdom to God the Father after he has destroyed all dominion, all authority, all power. He must reign until he has put his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. This new Adam will rule the way Adam was meant to, but never did, did he? He listened to the snake instead of God. He was kicked out of the garden and lost his ability to rule the world as God intended. Here we actually get a quote from Psalm 8, a psalm about Adam and Eve and their rule of the world, who got to whom God made them a little lower than the angels and put everything under their feet to rule the world. And he's saying Jesus is the new Psalm 8, Adam, 
He is one who has everything under his feet and will rule well all things into the new creation. It also echoes Psalm 110, the priest king forever, like Melchizedek, who all his enemies come under his feet. Psalm 8, Psalm 110, Jesus, the new Adam, the new priest king, who will bring rule of righteousness and peace to all things. He'll destroy all death, all injustice, all false government, boastful, evil, wicked abusers and bosses and abusive husbands and corrupt governments and totalitarian regimes and militia warlords. He'll topple them all. He'll bring down the devil himself. He'll bring down death and its rule over God's kingdom and establish God's good reign forever. In saying that he'll hand over the kingdom to the Father, um, the point there is not that Jesus stops being God or stops being the God-man. It's again a shift of timetable to say it's no longer the gospel preaching age where God rules through the Son in the preaching of the gospel. It's now the fulfilment where Father, Son and Spirit rule over the saved people in the new creation. That's, that, that saving time has come to an end and now God, Father, Son and Spirit rule all in all. It's that shift to completion is his point there. And when it happens, we get this glorious resurrection and glorification. When the washed, justified, sanctified people are made new by the new Adam, he says in verse 50, I'll tell you the truth, brothers and sisters, flesh and blood can't inherit that kingdom to come. You can't in this body, riddled with sin and sickness and sinful desires, you can't get into the new creation, but you will be transformed, you'll be glorified when you're resurrected. The perishable doesn't inherit the imperishable, but listen, I'll tell you a mystery. Verse 51, we won't all sleep, but we will all be changed in the flash and twinkling of an eye, the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound, the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we'll all be changed. For the imperishable must clothe itself with the imperishable and the mortal with immortality. And when that has happened, the same will be true. End of verse 54, death has been swallowed up in victory. Thanks be to God. Verse 57, he's given us victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. That new kingdom is for the glorified, the resurrected, the transformed, the rejoicing, finally free from sin, from death, from fear, from grief. Therefore, verse 58, two things. And this is a good way to close the conference, huh? Number one, stand firm, let nothing move you. It's a good hope. It's a sure kingdom. It's God's way. It's wonderful. Hang in there. Stand firm. Each day, listen to God, turn to him, trust in him, follow him. Stand firm. Number two, always give yourselves fully to the work of the Lord because it's not in vain. Stand firm. Preach the word. Share in his saving work, in his saving kingdom work, in his mission. This work to preach the word of the cross to a lost world, to build up believers in their most holy faith. It'll last forever. Moth and rust can't destroy it. Thieves can't break it and steal it. It's the work that doesn't spoil. The work that spills over into eternal life. It lasts forever. What a wonderful thing to stand firm in Jesus and to minister for Jesus. Enjoying his world, fallen but good, but working also to his new creation, which will never fade away. Brothers and sisters, I encourage you to stand firm and give yourselves to the work of the Lord. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for these warnings. 
and these encouragements and this wonderful inspirational reminder of the hope we have. Guide us and refresh us with these things, we pray. Amen. Amen. Thank you. Uh,